I've been asked to speak on the issue of hermeneutics and ministry, and some of you here might ask why. You've talked so much about it, what more is there to say? And furthermore, why is this so important? To answer this question, we really need to take a step back and think about the issue of the centrality of God's word in ministry. The centrality of God's word in ministry. How does Christ build his church? In part, he builds it by his word. He builds it by his word. And we know this, and there are reasons, two of them in fact, that I want to begin with this. First, it is to encourage you, to encourage you. Ministry can be a very lonely place. People might be coming up to ask you, Pastor, why are you always bringing us back to the scripture? And since you're alone, you might wonder, am I doing this right? Well, at a conference like this where we're all together, we need to be constantly reminding each other, you're not alone and you're doing it right, so be encouraged. Even more, if we see the extensive nature of Herman, of excuse me, the word of God in ministry, that serves as a platform for the imperative nature of hermeneutics. So let's talk about the centrality of God's word in ministry. You could sum it up this way. It is the beginning, middle, and end of ministry. It is the beginning, middle, and end of ministry. It's the beginning of ministry. Ephesians 2.20 reminds us that scripture is foundational for the church. So you can't even define the church in ministry apart from the Bible. And we see this in the American church. They have departed from the definitive standard, and that's exactly why we have chaos. From this, we are reminded that you can't have church and ministry. It can't even exist apart from Scripture. That's how central it is. It really is the beginning of ministry. For this reason, it's the middle of ministry. As Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, at this point, people will say, but there are lots of human manipulations that can make me a better and nicer person. Why do I need the scriptures? And we need to remind them, we're not just interested in making you a better and nicer person. We're interested in making you like Christ. We don't just want you to change so that you please the world. We want you to change in such a manner that actually pleases God. In fact, this is our destiny. That's what we need to remind them. This is our destiny. In Genesis 1, we know that we are created in the image of God. However, because of the fall, uh, that image is tarnished as we are created in the image of fallen Adam, Genesis chapter 5. However, there is hope because there will be a second Adam. As it says in Daniel 7, there will be one like a son of man, a son of Adam. He's like a son of man in that he's a man, but he's like a son of man in that he's more than that. He is God, very God, the very perfect image of God. For this very reason, in the Gospels, Jesus is called the Son of Man. And in Romans 5, he's called the second Adam. And in Colossians, Paul proclaims he is the image of God. And in Romans 8, we are conformed and are to be conformed to his image. And therefore, the image of God in Genesis 1 is the image of Christ in Romans 8. And if we understand that, then when God made us in his image, he always made us to be like Christ. When God made us in his image, he always meant for us to be like Christ. That is our destiny. And so, yes, there are lots of human manipulations that can make a nicer, skinnier you. But there is no human manipulation on the planet that can transform you to fulfill your destiny. That belongs to the word of God alone. And that highlights the importance of God's word. It shows the power of and empowers ministry. Thus, it really is the end of ministry. It is the end of ministry. In Acts 1, we understand that we are to bear witness to the truth. We are to bear witness to Christ. Therefore, we are the pillar and grounds of that truth in 1 Timothy 3.15. And so it is up to us to preserve and uphold the truth for the next generation. Knowing scripture and the scripture itself is mission critical then to our end goals. It is mission critical to our end goals. 
And with that very, very brief summary, I know that we know that Scripture is central to our ministries. If we want to have a ministry that pleases God, we must be all about His Word. It is for that very reason we are sola scriptura, because we know Scripture alone determines a true versus false ministry, an effective versus ineffective ministry, or an eternal versus irrelevant ministry. We are all about the scriptures, and that's why we're all about hermeneutics. That's why hermeneutics matters, because let me put it this way, and let me be very clear here. Hermeneutics determines whether we are truly sola scriptura or not. Hermeneutics determines whether we are truly sola scriptura or not, and we can see that through two vantage points. Here's the first one, the hermeneutical fine print the hermeneutical fine print. We know what fine print is. It allows you to say one thing, but undermine it through a loophole. And that's what evangelicals have done with God's word. It all begins with subverting the authority of God's word. They say, oh, I've got a high view of scripture. I I, I really believe in the high view of scripture, but we can never know what it means. That's just your take. That's just your interpretation. And because we can never come to a conclusion, you can't hold me accountable to anything. At that moment, people have subverted the authority of God's word through the hermeneutical fine print, and that allows people to reject doctrine. Whether that be issues of women in ministry, LGBTQ, moral issues, creation, Adam, or atonement, the argument is always the same. I don't know if that's really what the Bible says, so I don't know if I really have to believe it. It's not just rejecting doctrines, it's also justifying certain practices, whether it be the moral deviancies that I mentioned above, or a social justice agenda, a social justice with no gospel. We're really back to the late 1800s and early 1900s when they had a social gospel because liberals eviscerated the authority and the theology of scripture. We're in the exact same problem, but it's not because of a full frontal assault on scripture. It's because of the hermeneutical fine print. This has gone so far that it's actually led people to apostatize to Rome. People are going to the Roman Catholic Church, and here's why. In an age of hermeneutical ambiguity, people want answers. They want certainty, and here's what the Roman Catholic Church says. We've got our traditions. They're authoritative. They supposedly go back to Peter, so come to us, and evangelicals are evangelicals are. And let's be clear, at this point then, people have completely annihilated sola scriptura via the hermeneutical fine print. Hermeneutics determines whether we are truly sola scriptura or not. And this is what this reminds us of. We need to equip our people. We need to equip our people. People need to understand hermeneutics so well so that they never fall into the trap of hermeneutical ambiguity that I just mentioned. They need to know you can and you must understand God's word. You can and you must. Furthermore, we need to explain our conclusions. What I mean by this is that every doctrine and theological conclusion comes from the way we handle scripture. Theology always goes back to hermeneutics. Theology always goes back to hermeneutics. And so what we need to show our people is this is the right way to understand the Bible, and we have done it right. So these are the conclusions, and so we have no other option. We must bow the knee. Speaking of which, of doing it right, we need to also then examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. In a culture of hermeneutical ambiguity, you can get away with anything. You can have your own theology. You can have your own agenda. No one's going to call you on it. But let's be clear. At that moment that you do that, you have given people not God's word, but your word, and you have abandoned sola scriptura. You have abandoned sola scriptura. And this reminds us that we don't just need awareness of methodology. We need convictions We need hermeneutical convictions that the clarity that says this is what God demands and I will do that 
every single time. It is from that that we give our people certainty as we equip that. It is from that that we show them there is no other option as we explain our conclusions. And it is from that that as we examine ourselves, we are determined, I will please God as I open his word now. We know the importance of sola scriptura. We know that hermeneutics can undermine this. And so we know we must have convictions to never allow that to happen. Hermeneutics determines whether we are truly sola scriptura or not. But it's not just from the vantage point of undermining sola scriptura. We can look at it from a second vantage point, fulfilling it. We want to fulfill sola scriptura. So we don't just want to beware of the fine print. We want hermeneutical refinement. We want hermeneutical refinement. Hermeneutics is necessary for deeper study. We want to give the best spiritual food to our people. After all, we're all about the Bible. We want to fulfill sola scriptura. So we need hermeneutical refinement. But it's not just for our people. It's for us. We have questions. Sometimes we ask, is it okay to apply the text this way? How do I know? How do I exactly process this passage exactly theologically? And sometimes if we're really honest, we're just saying, I don't even know what to do with this text. Where's the theology? Where's the application? I have no clue what, what's going on here. Or sometimes we say, I'm just repeating myself over and over and over again. I need help. We need hermeneutical refinement so that we would fulfill a ministry of sola scriptura, to fulfill a ministry of sola scriptura. And in light of the fact of the fine print and in light of the fact of the need of refinement, I want to cover two major components in this afternoon session. Two major components. And the first is hermeneutical convictions. Hermeneutical convictions. That deals with the fine print, but even more fundamentally, it deals with the attitudes we must have towards Scripture. The attitudes we must have towards Scripture. And on top of that, I also want to deal with hermeneutical clarity hermeneutical clarity. That's the practical how-to. How to do literal, grammatical, historical better. How to make connections. How to do application. And those will handle the issues of refinement. So, hermeneutical convictions, hermeneutical clarity, and the whole goal of this is that we would never undermine sola scriptura, but that we would fulfill it for the glory of God. So with that in mind, let's talk about hermeneutical convictions. Hermeneutical convictions. When we're talking about convictions, we're looking at the key attitudes, really, the key dispositions, the perspectives and the approach mentally that we need to come to Scripture with so that we are faithful to God and that we also get the fullness of his word. And there are three of these, three of these, and they revolve around three questions. What, who, and how? What, who, and how? With that in mind, let's talk about the first question, what, namely, what are we looking for in Bible study? What is the goal of hermeneutics? It is authorial intent and that alone. Authorial intent and that alone. And I know we know this, but we need a strong proof for our people who are wondering, can I really know for certain, thus saith the Lord? And for us, if we really have a conviction about this, a true conviction, it resolves so many different issues. So bear with me as we go through this. What's a good way to prove that the scripture is all about authorial intent? I suggest walking our people through what I call the golden chain of communication. The golden chain of communication. That's a series of doctrines on the Bible that show you can and you must understand the scriptures based on the author's intent. And this golden chain begins with the doctrine of revelation. The doctrine of revelation. God reveals. He speaks. Therefore, by definition, the Bible is all about the author's intent. And none of that intent is lost in the human author. And that's where the doctrine of inspiration comes in. Second Peter 1 reminds us that men being moved by the Holy Spirit speak from God. Notice it is men speaking. It is their action, their intent. 
but it is identical to God's because it is from God. There is no loss of intent in between the divine author and the human author. This is exactly what we see in Exodus chapter 4 where God says, I will put my words in your mouth, Moses. God's intent and man's intent are identical. They are identical. There is no difference between them. There is nothing lost in this chain of communication. It's not even lost when it comes to the text. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed. And Aaronsy doubly confirms this because it shows the word of God is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So, from divine author to the text, the Bible is all about authorial intent, and none of it, none of it is lost or confused. We have an unbroken chain of communication, and that unbroken chain continues not only from the author to the text, but the text to the reader. That's to people like you and me. We have the doctrine of perspicuity, which talks about the clarity and the accessibility of meaning in the scriptures. This is established in passages like Deuteronomy 30 and Romans 10, where Paul is talking about the clarity of the gospel, and that is why the Jews are accountable. This shows that the text is a window. It's a clear window for us to see through, to see the author's intent. We can see clearly, and it's more than that we can see clearly. We are empowered to do so. That's where the doctrine of illumination comes in, the doctrine of illumination. We know people can suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit who inspired God's word dwells in our hearts and empowers us to know what he says. At this point, we can absolutely understand God's word because all of God's intent is preserved with clarity and we are empowered to know all of it. We can absolutely understand the scripture and we must. We are commanded to. 2 Peter chapter 3 states that, Men who twist the scriptures do so to their own destruction. God demands we know the Bible on his terms, and that's per the author's intent. Well, what do we do with this golden chain of communication? For our people who are wondering, can I really know for certain, thus saith the Lord? We need to tell them, absolutely. Absolutely. God's intent is not obfuscated, and you are empowered to know all of it. You can know, and not only can you know, you must know God's intent here. You must come to conclusions. There is no loophole. And for us, brothers, God demands the same thing. He demands us to understand authorial intent and that alone. And here's what that means we have no say. We have no say. We need a hermeneutic of surrender. We have no say. We don't have options. This is not America where you can vote. We cannot say, well, this is what makes best sense to me. This is what I like. This is what I prefer. So I'm going to choose to read the text this way. You don't have that right. We don't determine the main point, the ideas, the structure, or even the implications of a text. It is the author's intent that does that, and that alone, and we bow the knee. We bow the knee. We need a hermeneutic of surrender. You want to be faithful to God's word? You want to be faithful to God? This is the foundational conviction you must have, a hermeneutic of surrender. And if you understand this, it resolves a whole bunch of issues. It resolves a whole bunch of issues. Sometimes people wonder, should I read the Bible typologically? Well, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to read it according to the author's intent. And if the author says implicitly or explicitly, hey, let me make a typological connection for you, then you say it. This is like Simon says. You just say what they say. That's all you do. You just repeat what they say. But we don't have the right to do anything other than that. 
We don't have the right to do anything other than that. It's clear. We say what the author wanted us to say. Likewise with prophecy, this shows you can and you must. You can and you must understand prophecy according to the author's intent, for intent is not lost between the divine and human author. Now, as we're talking about this hermeneutics of surrender and we're talking about the implications therein, inevitably people will say, but what about the New Testament's use of the old? Doesn't that show that we can read Christ or the church or the gospel or the crucifixion or something else into certain texts that we want? Doesn't this grant us a little bit of hermeneutical freedom? And the answer is no, no, it's actually the opposite. Now, I've talked quite a bit about this, and I've written now a book that gives a deeper treatment than what we can give here. But what I want to prove in our limited time on this is that it's not just that the New Testament's use of the old is justified. It's that they had a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic par excellence. They had a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic par excellence. They knew the Old Testament better than us, and we can see that, and this is key, we can see that from the hardest text, from the so-called problem passages. That's what I want to show you now. So let's see how this works. They really knew it better. They knew the context better. They knew the context better. Some people say, well, what about Matthew's use of Hosea 11.1? Out of Egypt, I call my son. Hosea's talking about the Exodus. Matthew's talking about Jesus. Matthew must have taken it out of context. Well, in responding to this, we need to ask the question, why does Matthew use Hosea to talk about the Exodus? And you say, well, what other book are you going to use? How about the book of Exodus? (laughs) The thing is named after it anyways. We learn from this that Matthew wanted to talk about the Exodus the way Hosea did. And you say, well, how did Hosea talk about the Exodus? Well, in context, Hosea is using the Exodus to show God's great love, a deep, driving, delivering love. And so even though he will have to exile Israel in judgment from the land, Hosea 11.5, God says in Hosea 11.8, I cannot give them up. I cannot give them up. My love of the first Exodus will not let them go. Therefore, there will be a second Exodus, a second deliverance. Hosea 11, verse 11. The whole point of Hosea 11:1 is to show God's deep love of a first Exodus that drives a second Exodus. By the way, Hosea has talked a lot about this. In Hosea 1.11, he says in the second Exodus, there will be one leader who leads them home. That leader is a new Moses. And Hosea positively identifies the guy in Hosea 3.5 as a second David, a second David. And so when you get to Matthew, and Matthew shows Jesus' birth and how he was delivered from Herod, just like Moses as a baby boy was delivered from Pharaoh, God is showing through Matthew that the love of the first exodus is being worked out to the second exodus because God has raised up the deliverer who will lead his people home. Matthew wanted to talk about the exodus the way Hosea did. He read him in context, and in fact, he knew the context better than we did. Because if we had thoroughly checked, we would have known what Matthew's doing, and we wouldn't have this question. They knew the context better than we did. Not only do they know the context better than we did, they know Hebrew better than we do. They know Hebrew better than we do. And some of you here are laughing because you're like, I don't really know Hebrew. But they know Hebrew better than all of us. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, we know what it says. You made man a little bit lower than the angels. And we say, but in our Old Testament translations, it says, you made man a little bit lower than God. Well, they didn't know Hebrew. They had a bad translation. They missed the point. Well, let's talk about Psalm 8 in its original languages. If the psalmist wanted to talk about God, he would have said it this way. You, that is God, you made man a little bit lower than yourself. He would have addressed God consistently all the way through, but he doesn't say that. He says, you made man a little bit lower than Elohim, something else, someone else. 
And so even though Elohim can be translated as God, here it means angels. In fact, every single time this construction occurs in the Psalms, even our English translations translated as angels, cross-reference Psalm 138 verse 1. Psalm 138 verse 1. What does this show? The author of Hebrews had it right. He had it right. And even more than that, he knew Hebrew better than our top Hebrew scholars that translated our English translations. He knew Hebrew better than our top Hebrew scholars who translate our English translations. Let that sink in a little bit. In addition, they also read with higher precision. Higher precision. Matthew 27, people comment on this and they say, Matthew, you need to go back to Awana, buddy, because here you are, you're talking about Jesus being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and then you say that's from Jeremiah, but actually comes from Zechariah. I think you got a little bit confused there. To be fair to Matthew, Matthew's actually alluding to two passages, Jeremiah chapters 18 and 19, as well as Zechariah 11. And there's a reason, because they're connected. They're connected actually around one Hebrew word, the word the potter, the potter. In fact, this is the only time that word in that form occurs in the entire Old Testament, in those two passages and them alone, because there's a theological train of thought here. Jeremiah 18 and 19 shows the significance of the potter. He illustrates God's sovereign right to judge Israel in exile, God's sovereign right to judge Israel in exile. So in Zechariah 11, when God predicts that Israel will betray their Messiah for 30 pieces of silver, he says, throw the silver to the potter. Why? Because God is going to further judge them in exile. And Matthew shows how all of that plays out. Matthew cites Jeremiah to show you the full train of thought from Jeremiah to Zechariah to Matthew. That means he even knew an individual word. He knew the Old Testament down to the word and where those words were found in the Old Testament to bring it all together. He knew one word. He knew where those words were found in the Old Testament to bring it together. The guy is a walking, talking, writing Bible software. That's how good this guy is. Are you a walking, talking Bible software? You're like, no, me neither. We're all in the same boat. We're all dumb. And that's okay. We just need to realize they read with higher precision. They read with an immense precision down to the word, and they could even know where that word was found. They read not only with a higher precision, but even with a higher view of the Old Testament, higher view of Old Testament than we have. In the Gospel of John, John uses certain psalms to apply to Jesus' death, and sometimes we wonder, did David really know that? How do these psalms legitimately apply? Fundamentally, we need to realize there is messianic prophecy, and David can give messianic prophecy. Psalm 22, I'm sure we're familiar with this passage. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later on in the psalm, it says this, that all the ends of the earth will come and worship God. All the ends of the earth will come and worship God. Did David do that? Did he cause all the ends of the earth in his lifetime to come and worship God? No. David knows that. He's not dumb. He is not talking about himself. He's talking about something ultimate, something eschatological, something messianic. David knows more than we give him credit for. David knows more than what we give him credit for. And along that line, he knows, even in texts that are not messianic prophecies, that he can speak scripture, which has general applicability to everyone in the people of God. And on top of that, David is not just writing as a nice guy. He's writing as a Davidic king. He's writing as a Davidic king who's fleshing out the Davidic covenant and all of its promises. He's writing a theology of Davidic kings. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is the Davidic king, so it inherently applies to him. For this reason, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they will interweave psalms into their messianic prophecies, and John just shows the outflow of that in the New Testament. John's not under-reading the Old Testament. John's not misreading the Old Testament. What he is doing is he has a high view of the Old Testament. He understands David is not just some nice guy emoting. 
He's a theologian who writes a theology of Davidic kings, of whom Jesus is chief as the Davidic king, as the Davidic king. It inherently applies to him. So here's what we learn. They knew the context better. They know Hebrew better. They read it with higher precision, and they read it with a higher view of the Old Testament. They were precise. They were precise. They know the context. They know Hebrew on an amazing level. They're down to the individual words, and they can cross-reference it with everything. They are precise, and compared to that, we are sloppy. We are sloppy. And here's what should happen. We should stop trying to use the New Testament's use of the old to justify our sloppy hermeneutic and instead be convicted at the rigorous and exquisite literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic they have. That's what should happen. Brothers, there's no hermeneutical flexibility or latitude. There's just a hermeneutic of absolute and rigorous surrender. By way of concluding this first and foundational conviction, I want to direct your attention to 2 Timothy 2.14. 2 Timothy 2.14, it says this, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. With this opening charge, Paul impresses upon us the importance of hermeneutics. We need to care about hermeneutics as much as God does. We need to care about hermeneutics as much as God does, and specifically, wrangling about words. Now, our initial impression of this might be that wrangling about words deals with disputing the false teachers in some way or not to do it in some way. But if we actually do a more careful word study, the best translation is not wrangle about words. The best translation is this, wrangle or even better, war, war against the word, war against the word. Paul is saying here, stop fighting. Stop fighting the text. Stop struggling against the text by either forcing your ideas in or trying to silence it so you can say what you want. Stop fighting. Because he says, look, it's not helpful, which is useless. And even worse, it's harmful. It leads to the ruin of the hearers. Brothers, there may be times when you think you have such a good point, you want to sign your preacher's Bible yourself. But if you had to fight the text to make the point, you're not helping anybody. The scripture has the perfect articulation of truth. We say what it says. We say what it says. We have a hermeneutic of surrender. And even more, what we need to realize, brothers, this is a command by Paul. Don't wrangle against the word. Don't fight against the word. This is a command. This is sin or not sin. This is obey or disobey. And at this moment, you must realize hermeneutics is a moral issue. Hermeneutics is a moral issue, and that needs to be our conviction. Every time we open up our Bible, we realize this is the gravity of the situation. I can either sin against God when I handle this text or not, and the determining factor is whether or not you will surrender. You will surrender to the author's intent. That must be our conviction. It is a moral conviction, and it demands that is what is demanded for faithfulness to God in his word. So we need a hermeneutic of surrender. That's the first point. We need to be all about authorial intent, and that's especially in light of the fact that the author has a lot to say. The author has a lot to say. And that brings us to our second conviction for hermeneutical faithfulness before the Lord, and that regards the question, who are the biblical writers? Who are the biblical writers? And the initial answer we might give is that they're inspired and they're farmers, fishermen, shepherds, and tent makers, and that's true. But eventually we'll run into a problem, and it's this. Who the biblical writers are determines how we read them. Who they are determines how we read them. You see, what happens is as we read certain things like narratives or genealogies or other historical records, we say, well, these guys are pretty simple guys. They're farmers and fishermen and shepherds and such. 
I guess they wrote pretty simply here, and there must not be much there. Who they are determines how we read them. And this is precisely why, like I said in the introduction, sometimes we're wondering, what do I do with this text? Where's the theology? Where's the application? Who they are determines how we read them. This is even reflected in our commentaries. Have you noticed that an exegetical commentary on an epistle comments on every single word, phrase, even preposition? But then you get to other parts of Scripture, and the commentary says something like this, verse 1 through 15. Here's a paragraph. Who they are determines how we read them. And even in this brief exercise, I think we have seen, sometimes we don't always have the highest confidence in the biblical writers. We don't. And we've oversimplified them as a result. We've oversimplified them as a result. We need a more biblically accurate picture of who the biblical writers are. Yes, they are farmers and fishermen, but they are also inspired and under inspiration. The biblical writers are theologians. That's what we have to realize. The biblical writers are theologians. And everything they write, not just the epistles, everything they write is theological. That must be our confidence in Scripture. Everything is deep. There is no thing in Scripture that is not. That must be our confidence, and that must be our expectation. After all, when you open a math textbook, you know every page is unfortunately about math. When you open your Bible, you should know every page, every verse, every passage is fortunately about deep theology. There is no exception to that rule. That must be our viewpoint. That must be our perspective. That must be our conviction. And it's not hard to prove that, actually. It's not hard to prove that. We know that the biblical writers are saturated in God's word. We use them as an example of people who meditate on God's word day and night to motivate our own people to read their Bible in a year. We know they're immersed in scripture. We know they're biblical thinkers. And the statistics show it. The statistics show it. One in every 10 verses, scholars say, one in every 10 verses is an allusion to previous revelation. One in every 10. That shows that the biblical writers are constantly expounding, explaining, developing, applying the scripture. You know what we call that? That's theology. They're constantly doing theology because they are theologians. And it not only helps us to see that this is constantly happening, but it gives us a way to trace it. It gives us a way to trace it. You see, previous revelation acts as an anchor point, establishing the topic, the theological idea that the author is discussing. And from there, we can trace what is going on theologically. And that's what I really want to do now. I want to go through a couple of genres where we might think, is there any theology here? What's going on? And I want to show you there is theology there because everything is theological, because the biblical writers are theologians, and that must be our confidence and perspective of the text. That must be our conviction. And so with that, let's talk about narratives. Narratives. A narrative like Ruth chapter 4. What do you do with the whole issue of leveret marriage in Ruth 4, where the relative of a widow marries, uh, or the widow rather, marries a another relative to raise up a child in the deceased person's name. What do we do with that? And along with that comes the whole sandal business. I mean, how do you handle this transaction? Where's the theology in that? Well, we need to go back to Deuteronomy 25 and the law of leveret marriage, the law of leveret marriage. And in Deuteronomy 25, if we study it in context, we'll realize it's expounding on the law of coveting in the Ten Commandments, the law of coveting. And that kind of makes sense because the younger brother in the situation might covet his older brother's name, desiring to raise a child in his name, not his older brother's. But this is the way the law works. If you want it all, you lose it all. If you want it all, you lose it all. The the younger brother who covets, he wants a name for himself. Oh, he'll get a name. But it's the name of this, the one who's worse than a sandal, who should be tossed aside like the ultimate reject of society. If you want a name, you'll get it. If you want it all, you will lose it all. But if you lose it all, you will gain it all. I think we've heard that principle somewhere. 
That's what's going on in Deuteronomy 25, and that's what's going on in Ruth chapter 4. You see, Boaz is actually going above and beyond the law in Ruth 4. He's not willing and only at risk to lose his own personal name in the process. He's actually going to lose his entire family heritage. This is precisely why the near kinsman redeemer says, I can't do this because it would corrupt my inheritance. The reason he says the language corrupt my inheritance is he knows this would erase my family from Israel. This would erase my family in Israel. I would lose everything, every single thing in this process. And Boaz says, I'll sacrifice it all. I'll sacrifice it all to save this other family, Ruth and Naomi. He lost it all. But we know he gained it all, didn't he? What line did he join? The Davidic line, which is ultimately the Messianic line. This is what is going on in the text. And God has shown in context that he has preserved a righteous remnant in the dark period of the judges. And by their beautiful sacrifice, he advances history toward the Messiah. There is theology in narratives. And it's not just Ruth 4. It's 1 Kings 4. 1 Kings 4. Well, you say, what's in 1 Kings 4? Well, it's a list of food that Solomon's household ate. You think, what's the theology in that? How am I going to preach that? Diet like Solomon? No. If you look at those foods in 1 Kings 4, they all go back to one passage, Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14, where Moses is giving the clean foods that Israel can eat, especially in light of the fact that they're going to enter the promised land and experience the bounty that God has for them there. So bare minimum, 1 Kings 4 reminds us that the Davidic king is responsible for fulfilling Israel's destiny to allow them to experience the promises that God had promised them. But it goes one step beyond that. It goes one step beyond that. You see, in Deuteronomy 14, the law is worded this way. You may eat from any, you fill in the blank, you may eat from any tree of the garden, Genesis chapter 2. Deuteronomy 14 is connected with Genesis 2 because it's, here's the point Moses is making. When God fulfills his promises with Israel, the whole world will return back to Eden. And in 1 Kings 4, we see that the Davidic king is not only responsible for the fulfillment of Israel's destiny, he is responsible to make all things right. All things right. For our people who are wondering, does God do anything about famine and world hunger? We can point them to a list of food to show that there is theology in here, but not only theology, hope hope. There is theology in narrative. And it's not just narratives, it's also prophecies. It's also prophecies. An obscure text like Isaiah 29, be blind, Israel. Israel, you are blind. What do we do with that obscure text? What's its significance? Well, we remember in context, Isaiah says, Israel, you have eyes, but do not see. We know that. And so this is developing a doctrine of sin. It's showing the depth of it that even though in context God so clearly will deliver Israel from Assyria, they can't even see the truth staring them right in the face. They will never repent. That's the power of sin. That's the blinding power of sin. That informs us of a doctrine of sin and even informs our worldview. There is theology and prophecy and it's practical. It's practical. But in context, Isaiah has said that this is the defining problem of Israel. This is the defining problem of Israel. And that's important because that will set up for quite a few texts. After all, in Isaiah 42, it says that the suffering servant opens the eyes of the blind. And that sets up for the New Testament. We know that Jesus' healing of blind people in the New Testament is a unique messianic miracle. And now we know why. Because if you can heal the eyes of the physically blind, what does that show? You can deal with their spiritual blindness as well. And that spiritual blindness, Isaiah has already said, is the defining problem of Israel. The Messiah, the one who opens the eyes of the blind, is the solution and the only solution for this world. That is the theology stemming from this text. There is theology and prophecy, and it exalts Christ. And if you understand what I just said, you'll understand another passage, Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50, 
which is a suffering servant song. We're familiar with the suffering servant songs of Isaiah 42 and 49. They talk about his victory, and of course, we're familiar with Isaiah 53, which talks about his suffering. But we don't always know what to do with Isaiah 50. What do you do with Jesus saying, I have a tongue to encourage my disciples. My ears are not stopped up. They're open. What do we do with that? Well, we remember Isaiah says that you have ears, Israel, but cannot hear. And Isaiah is a man of unclean lips. What does the Messiah say? I don't have unclean lips. My tongue is pure. It can encourage my disciples. I don't have ears that do not hear. My ears are open and obedient. Here is the suffering servant's point. I am everything Israel is not. I am everything my people are not. Sometimes our people are very discouraged by their sin, and they wonder, how do I stand before the Lord now? We need to remind them, Jesus is everything we are not so that we are everything we should be in him before God. There is theology in this text that is monumental and it's encouraging. There is theology and prophecy. There is theology and prophecy. It's not just Old Testament prophecy. It's New Testament prophecy, Revelation 12. We have this mention of a dragon. And on one hand, we know that previous revelation acts as an anchor point to help us know what is going on. The Greek word dragon used in the Greek translations of the Old Testament refer to the Leviathan in Isaiah 27. The Leviathan, who is Satan? Who is Satan in Isaiah 27? So we know the dragon symbolizes Satan. But it's not just that we know what is going on. We know so what. We know so what. You see in Isaiah 27, it talks about the Leviathan and how God will wrestle and destroy the Leviathan and crush the head of the fleeting serpent. Where have we heard that language of crushing a head of a serpent before? Genesis 3.15. And so now we know why Satan is described the way he is. Yes, he's ferocious, that's true. But even more, we know this is the final showdown. This is the showdown that was predicted from the very beginning. It is now happening. And even more, as eschatology demonstrates the immense and immeasurable faithfulness of God, we see that full faithfulness. Why? Because God is going to keep every single promise now that he has ever made all the way back to the very first one he made in Genesis 3.15. That is the precise faithfulness of our God. There is immense theology in prophecy. Here's what we learn from this. Everything is theological. Everything is theological. We could talk more about other genres. We could talk about genealogies that show God's faithfulness, the connection with the Messiah, or even one's redemptive historical heritage and impact. We could talk about the building instructions of the tabernacle and temple, which are linked with creation. And so there's theology in that. Everything is theological. Everything is theological because the biblical writers, they're theologians. That's what they do. And that's how we should read them. That must be our conviction. That must be our perspective. That must be our expectation and high confidence in scripture. And as a result, we will never, we will never just skip over a text and say, well, that doesn't seem so deep, whatever. No, we will never do that. Rather, we will stay with the text and we're going to study it as hard as we do the epistles because there is theology there. And as a result of this, we give our people the highest view of scripture. Why? Because they know every part, not just the epistles, every single thing in this book is deep and profound and the truth as we give them that depth. That must be our conviction every single time we open our Bible. Well, we've talked about what we're looking for, authorial intent, and that's also, we've talked about who the biblical writers are, their theologians and everything they write is theological. But we need a final conviction. The third and final conviction is this, to be faithful. It regards the question, how they write. How do they write? Namely, they write with intent. They write with intent. That's what we must have clear, and as we'll see, this is a double-edged sword. This is a double-edged sword. 
Sometimes we think of intent as just what an author says, but even we know that's not the case. Let's say you're playing sports, somebody hits the ball in the air, and you're about to catch it, and you say, I got it, I got it. But then somebody else just runs right into you before you catch it, and the ball drops to the ground, no one catches it. And you say to the guy, did you not hear what I said? And the guy says, yeah, I heard what you said. You said, I got it. And then you would say, well, then you, you didn't know what I meant. You didn't know what I intended because the reason I said it is because I'm going to catch the ball. And so what you're supposed to do is be anywhere on the field except for here. That's what's supposed to happen. <laughs> Intent is not just what you say. It's why you say it and so what, the response. It is what, why, and so what. What, why, and so what? And the Bible affirms this definition. It's for that very reason in passages like Isaiah 1 and Jeremiah 7, this is what God says. You didn't obey me, Israel. You didn't obey me. And Israel says, but we did what you said. We offered sacrifices and offerings. But God says, you didn't do it for the reason I asked. Why? And so your responses, so what, are all off. Intent is what, why, and so what. The New Testament affirms this as well. We're not to be just a hearer in James of what God says. We are to be a doer. That includes the why and the so what. Intent is what, why, and so what. And like I said, this is a double-edged sword. This is a double-edged sword. What this shows is that every text has an application. Every text has an application because it has an intent. There is always a so what with every single text because there is an intent with it. And that should encourage us. Every single passage is designed to shape our lives. Every single text is designed to shape our lives, and that should encourage us, but it should convict us. Because here's what it shows. You can't sweep a text under the table and say, this doesn't seem so relevant. No, they're all relevant. They all have a response. And we are to find that response. We are to find those applications, but they must be the ones that the author intends. They must be in the range that the author intends. Not every logical application is valid. Not every logical application is valid. You say, what do you mean by this? Let me give you an example. So let's say you're having dinner with your wife at a nice restaurant, and she says, honey, are you enjoying dinner? And you say, oh, yeah, this is great. I love this. I love spending time with you. And then she says, then you don't like my cooking. <laughs> whoa, whoa, wait a minute here. There is an intended range that you biblically must intend. Namely, she could have said, I love you. I'm enjoying time with you. I can't wait to do this again. But you don't like my cooking. Yes, it could be logical. You're eating the same dish that your wife makes. So if you like this one, maybe you don't like the other one that she made. But that's not valid, even if it's logical. Why? Because you didn't intend it. You didn't intend it. There is a range of application to be sure, but the valid ones are only the ones that the author intends. And so we must have a conviction that every time we open our Bible, that we understand every text the text that I'm looking at has an application. This text is meant to change my life. This text is meant to change my life. It has an intent, and I will honor that. Therefore, I will stay with the text until I find the applications, not that I deem are great, but that the author has set via his intent. We want to be hearers and doers of authorial intent. And so we have three convictions here. We have what we're looking for, that's authorial intent, in light of who the biblical writers are, namely their theologians and everything they write is theological. And that's especially in light of how they write. They write with intent. That means every single text has an application. 
And based on this, this should drive us to the highest view of Scripture. The highest view of Scripture. Scripture is not some starting point or platform that you can get on and then pontificate on your own profound insights and ideas. Rather, it is all sufficient. All the theology is in it. Why? Because the biblical writers are theologians. And all the applications stem from it. Why? Because they write with intent. And so what we need to do is the hard work every time we open our Bibles and in every single text, we don't stop until we get it all because it's all there, all the theology and all the application. We need to be convinced that we're most brilliant when we say the full intent of God without any modification or addition because that's the truth. That is when we are most brilliant. And by our full surrender, our people will know sola scriptura, sola scriptura. All the theology is in Scripture alone. All the application is in Scripture alone because it's in the author's intent. It's in the author's intent. And you say, yes, that's the standard. That's what I want to do. I want to nail that. How do I do it better? How do I do that better? Well, this is where we move from conviction to clarity. In fact, if we have these convictions, we're driven to hermeneutical clarity in our methodology. And just like there were three convictions, there are three major tips that I want to give that correspond that will help us clarify our methodology. And here's the first one. Let's do literal grammatical historical well. Let's do literal grammatical historical well. On one hand, we don't need to add to our hermeneutic. People like to add to literal grammatical historical. They like literal grammatical historical contextual, literal grammatical historical canonical, literal grammatical historical creedal, literal grammatical historical biblical theological. But here's what we've learned from our first conviction. The author's intent rules. And especially in light of the fact that it is all sufficient. Because all the theology is there because they're theologians. And all the applications stem from it because they write with intent. Everything we want is in the author's intent. So we just need to bring that out. That's all we have to do. We just have to bring that out by virtue of what they say in their language, which tells us the meaning and the connections that they're making. We call that grammar. And by virtue of the context and the purpose that they're writing, we call that history. We don't need to add anything. We just need to really do literal, grammatical, historical well. We need to do it well. And that brings us to the other hand. You see, we can do it better. Sometimes literal, grammatical, historical gets a bad name from us from us. We give it a bad name because all we do is just slap a bunch of facts together. We just list data. We say, here's some historical background, have some word studies, and slap an application on the end, and we call it good. And our people are saying, I think there could be more to it than this. And it's not that there's something missing from literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutics. It's because we're deficient. It's because we're deficient. We can do it better, and here's what it revolves around. Here's what it revolves around. Tying our observations with the author's intent. Tying our observations with the author's intent. I want to go through several steps of exegesis to show how this would work. I also want to give us some troubleshooting. If you see this problem in your preaching, this is how you correct it. And through all of this, let's do literal grammatical historical well. Let's do it well. Let's do it better. And so let's begin with historical background. Historical background. Historical background is not just listing a bunch of facts. It is tying that with the author's intent. So relative to the macro background of a whole book, you need to tie authorship, audience, and setting to show your people this is the purpose of the book. This is what the book is all about. This is the major impact it's supposed to have. If you can't do that, either think about your historical background until you can or don't say it. It's not edifying yet. 
It's not edifying yet. Likewise, with micro background, it should explain an individual passage better. It should explain an individual passage better. And if you can't figure out how that works, then either think about it till you can or don't say it. It's not useful. It's not useful. Now, this is an art and science. This is an art and a science. Some things that seem irrelevant are actually quite relevant. One time I was looking at coins and you say, what do coins have to do with anything? Well, I was looking at coins and you see these Hellenistic coins that have women in head coverings, but Roman and Jewish coins that have women without head coverings. And as Thistleton points out in his First Corinthians commentary, this has bearing on the whole issue of women in head coverings in First Corinthians 11. It shows the dynamics of how that works in a culture and that it's limited to a certain culture. It's limited to a certain culture. This is significant. Things that you might not think are relevant, like a coin, could actually be very relevant, but you have to think through it and connect it with the author's intent. That's when it becomes edifying. Furthermore, we want to make sure our people have the full context of history, the full context of history, not just a bunch of events, but also redemptive history, his story. And so on the macro level, as we think about a book as a whole, we need to think through and have answers. Why did God raise up this prophet, our apostle, at this time to speak the truth? Why did he do that? That shapes the whole theological contribution and uniqueness of a book. That will shape your interpretation in a major substantial way. We need to have answers to that. And likewise, on the micro level, if we're looking at a passage, we need to know, does this advance redemptive history? If so, articulate it. We need to know both history and redemptive history. That all plays a factor in biblical interpretation. Well, so troubleshooting. Troubleshooting. If you find when you're talking about history that you're just listing facts, then this is what you need to do. You need to tie it to the author's intent. You need to show it how it amplifies the purpose or how it clarifies something in the text. Be deliberate about that. And if you don't know the main agenda or impact or applications of a book, that means you need to do way more work in historical background, both in observing data about history and tying it with the author's intent. Tying it with the author's intent. Well, let's move to another topic, literary context. Literary context. Literary context is not just information that surrounds your passage. Rather, it is developing an author's argument. It is developing an author's argument, showing how the purpose established by historical background is worked out step by step by step by step by step in the book, such that you know exactly why your passage is there, how it builds on everything, and you would be able to answer this question. If this passage was missing, how would it destroy the author's argument? If this passage was missing, how would it destroy the author's argument? You should know why this passage is absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. And the result of doing good literary context is that you would have a distinctive main point. A distinctive main point. That's a sign that you've done it well. You know, sometimes people say in First John, Oh, John just repeats himself, talks about love in chapter 2, and talks about love in chapter 3, and talks about love in chapter four. And how do I prevent being redundant and just saying the same thing over and over again? You need to do better literary context. You need to understand the argument of the book better. And then if you do, you'll realize this, that in chapter one, John says, I write these things in order that you might have fellowship with us. And at the beginning of John chapter two, first John chapter two, that is, he says, I write these things in order that you might not sin. At the end of first John two, he says, I write these things about the false teachers. And at the end of first John five, he says, I write these things in order that you might know that you have eternal life. Depending on which discussion of love and where you're at in the book, it has a different purpose. It has a different purpose. So in first John two, when John is talking about love, he's talking about the love that the false teachers don't have. And that is going to be totally differently taught than talking about the behavior and the belief, the doctrine of love that is found in chapters three and four for a believer. 
There is no redundancy. There is no redundancy if you do your literary context well and you understand the flow and the argument of a book. But we're not, we're not just looking at context within a book. We're looking at context outside of a book as well. Context outside of a book as well. We know from our second conviction that the biblical writers are theologians, and they're constantly drawing from previous revelation to incorporate theology in their writings. So we need to make sure we're aware of this as well. More on that later. In any case, troubleshooting. If you are repeating yourself, if you think every sermon I say is almost the same thing, then you need to do literary context far better. You need to really work step by step, by distinctive step, until you have clarity on every step of the way, even itty-bitty micro-steps if necessary. That's how you troubleshoot that. And if it seems like you're missing theology from your text, you're just thinking, there's no depth here, what's going on? Then you need to start making some connections. More on that shortly. Well, here is a final step, often in the exegetical process, grammar and word studies. And let's be fair. Apart from exegetical fallacies, we often do a decent job of connecting grammar and word studies to the author's intent. We talk about a tense of a verb or the impact of a nuance of a word. That's good. But we can do it better, and we can still do more. For example, with grammar, we should talk about structure, structuring a passage. Look at those conjunctions. Look at how verbs are parallel or subordinate to each other. That will give you the layout the author wanted you to have, not your own made-up outline, the one that the author wanted you to have. Furthermore, if you do word study well, if you do word study well, that will allow you to distinguish between every word, phrase, and verse, which is very, very useful in light of this troubleshooting. Troubleshooting. If you feel like your message has a clear, distinct point, because you did literary context well, but it's a little bit disorganized, what do you need to do? More grammar more structural analysis, looking at how the conjunctions and the verbs work in a passage. <clears throat> that will give you clarity. If your subpoints are clearly delineated, but they seem kind of repetitive, a little bit redundant, then you know what you need to do. More word studies so that you can delineate and distinguish between a word, a phrase, and a verse from the other. Here's what we learn ultimately. Everything is in the author's intent. Everything is in the author's intent. So we just need to do literal, grammatical, historical well. This is the bottom line of what we're looking for. We want you to know what every single word and phrase means of a text and why the author had that there in light of and in connection with the sentence, paragraph, main point of a passage, argument of the book, and the purpose that the book has per its historical background. That's the kind of clarity we want you to have. And if you have that, then you know what everything means. You know why it's there, and that will lead to the so what. Then you have the author's intent, intent in its full power. On a practical note, what I do personally is I have a block diagram, and on this block diagram, I connect all the words, study historical background to every single word and phrase. That way, I know I have a distinctive main point. I have a clear organization. I know I have a what and a why for every single word and phrase, and I know that everything I'm going to say is going to directly amplify that in some way. Do you have to do it my way? Of course not. My point is the principle still stands. The principle still stands. We need to tie observation with the author's intent. And we even can troubleshoot when we have problems with that. So let's do literal grammatical historical well. Let's do literal grammatical historical well. Well, here's the second tip. Here's the second tip. Let's make some connections. Let's make some connections. Based on our second conviction, we know that the biblical writers, they're making connections in the text. That's often how they're drawing theology. And a lot of people come up to me and say, how do we find those? 
How do we find those? That's a great question. That's a great question, and it's actually not hard. It's actually not hard. I know it sounds hard, but it's not hard. It revolves around connecting the dots, and there's really only two steps. Can't get much easier than that. Two steps. Collect all the dots. That's identifying all the relevant passages involved. And connect the dots. That's interpreting the significance of this. Collect, connect. Collect, connect. So let's talk about what collecting the dots entails. What is collecting the dots entails? Well, what we're looking for are what we call a trigger phrase, a phrase that the author leaves behind to trigger us to think about another text, and we know how this works. We have games based on this principle, like catchphrase and taboo. If I say, for God so love the world, we know that one phrase can trigger us to think about another thought. And in like manner, the author leaves behind these trigger phrases to trigger us to think about another passage. Now, in proving this, what we need to prove is what I call linguistic distinctiveness. Linguistic distinctiveness. That means that a word or phrase points you to one passage, but not another. It says, go to text A, but not to text B. So words and phrases like God or Jesus are not linguistically distinct because we don't know what passage you're referring us to. But the phrase Jesus Christ in that word order is linguistically distinct because it occurs less than 10 times in Paul. So it's directing us to those passages, but not to everything else. We're looking for linguistic distinctiveness. We're looking for linguistically distinct trigger phrases. Now you might be saying, well, how do I find that practically? How do I find that practically? Well, fundamentally, and don't miss this, fundamentally, we need to be careful readers and memorizers of Scripture. We need to be careful readers and memorizers of Scripture because that will give us a repository of our mind of truth that can make the associations the author wants us to make. I can't stress that enough. Don't be lazy. Let's read our Bibles. Let's memorize it. It will serve us well in so many different ways in the long term. But there are also resources. There are also resources that can help us. For example, a lot of our cross-references are already wired this way. Treasury of Scripture knowledge. Treasury of Scripture knowledge is often also wired this way. And even more, open up your Greek New Testament, brothers. The Nestle Aland 26, 27, and 28 in the margins has a bunch of cross-references that are already based on trigger phrases between the New and Old Testament. A lot of the work has already been done for you. There's no excuse not to do this. It's right there in the margins. You don't even have to read the Greek. I can't even believe I'm saying that. You just look at the margins and you'll get it. It's that easy. Even more, we have computers that can run Bible searches to find the relevant programs and the re relevant passages, rather. And what we can have is, with that, total accessibility. This is not out of our reach. You can do this. You can do this. So as we use these resources to find these linguistically distinct trigger phrases, we need to prove that this isn't coincidental, that it's intentional, that it's intentional. And here are some questions that you can ask along that line. Does the author go out of his way to make a connection? Does the author go out of his way to make a connection? Because if he does, it's intentional. Does he use this same logic elsewhere? Because if he uses it elsewhere, like if Paul reasons about creation in one text, he, and he seems to be doing so in another text, well, that makes sense. It fits together. It's Paul. Does he appeal to prior revelation earlier in context? Because if he's already thinking about prior revelation earlier, he's probably thinking about it here. Does it make sense in context or help us to explain the meaning better? Because if a text is so required for you to understand the author's intent, then the author depended on you finding that information. He really wanted you to have that. It's intentional. So we're looking for these trigger phrases. We're looking to prove that they're linguistically distinct. We're looking for you to show that it's not just random, but that it's intentional because we're all about the author's intent. And we want to make sure we collect all the dots. We collect all the dots. You see, sometimes a text can refer to many different texts. Collect 
all the dots. Sometimes a text refers to a text, which refers to another text, which refers to another text, like Matthew refers to Hosea, which refers to Exodus. Collect all the dots. And having done so, then we connect the dots. Then we connect the dots. We interpret it, and we need to keep this in mind. It's not one size fits all. It's not one size fits all. Sometimes people say, oh, well, maybe everything's typological or everything's prophecy fulfillment. No, everything is based upon the author's intent. That's what we always go back to. We surrender to that. And so does the author give us the meaning of a text? Or if so, what is it? Does he highlight an implication or an application? If so, what is that particularly? And ultimately, and here's the key, we need to show how all of that developing theology contributes to the author's intent. How the author is using all of that in the end, that must be absolutely key. And this provides us two important reminders. One is this, that you need exegesis. You need exegesis. This is not some magic bullet you do in place of exegesis. This is part of the exegetical process. And even more, you need to have the right perspective on this. This is about precision. Sometimes when you start to make connections pastorally, your people will come up and ask you, Pastor, do I have to make all these connections in order to understand God's word remotely or even generally? And we need to remind them, no, you can get pretty far by reading your Bible. You should do that. This is about precision. This is about making sure we have the full intent that the author had. This isn't about just even remotely understanding your Bible at all. We need to have the proper perspective. Well, collect the dots, connect the dots, collect the dots, connect the dots. But sometimes the method is better caught than taught. So let's go through two case studies. Two case studies. Here's the first one on Exodus chapter 1. Now, I think we're pretty familiar with Exodus 1. We know there's a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph. We know that there's these midwives. But what do we do with this story? What's the significance? Well, let's collect some dots. Let's collect some dots. Exodus 1.1. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. This is a direct quote from Genesis 46. A direct quote from Genesis 46. So we know Exodus is hooking into Genesis, specifically the Abrahamic covenant. And within that, God's promise to multiply Abraham's seed. The seed promise, which even goes back to Genesis 3.15, and the seed that will crush the serpent's head. So that's involved. But you also have Exodus 1 verse 7, where it says, the sons of Israel were fruitful and multiplied. Where have you heard the language, be fruitful and multiply? Genesis chapter 1, this is hooking back into creation. This is hooking back into creation. And so you know that this narrative is about creation. This is about Abrahamic covenant, and it's about Genesis 3.15. If we understand this, then Pharaoh's description in verse 10 will make a lot of sense. It says this, come, let us deal wisely with them. If you highlight the phrase, come, let us, in your Bible software and search for it, there will only be one other hit. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. In fact, this is confirmed in verse 14, where Israel is coerced to make bricks. The Hebrew word for bricks is very rare. It's not used very much, but guess where it is used? Genesis chapter 11. Here's what we start to understand. Moses is depicting Pharaoh as the continuation of the rebellion of the Tower of Babel, which continues the struggle of Genesis 3.15. And if you understand this, then verse 15 will make a lot of sense. Then the king of Egypt speaks to these Hebrew midwives. One's name is Shifrod, the other one is Puah. You say, why are these Hebrew midwives named? Just for Bible trivia? I mean, why do we need that? And for that matter, why do we see that Pharaoh's not even called Pharaoh? He's not even named. He's just the king of Egypt. What's going on here? We need to go back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babylon, and in doing so, is uh, the people desire to build a tower in order that they may make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And because Pharaoh is continuing the rebellion of the Tower of Babel, he wants to make a name for himself. But what does God say? You have no name. 
You have no name. The name goes to the least of these, to my people, because they fear me and they will overcome you in absolute victory. That sets the trajectory for the rest of the chapter. There is theology in this text. We need to now then collect, having collected some dots, we need to connect some dots, connect some dots. We know what's going on in Exodus 1. It's setting the stage of the Exodus. And so we see even after 400 years, God has not forgotten his agenda. God has not forgotten. He is fighting Genesis 3.15, and he has absolute victory. This is an epic moment. This is an epic moment, which sets the epicness of the entire book of Exodus. Collect the dots, connect the dots. Here's another case example. Case example. Galatians 3.28, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. I think we're pretty familiar with this text. Talks about our transformation in Christ as son so that we're no longer under the law for the law has been fulfilled. But there are questions that people have about this text. Feminists will say, well, no male, female. Get rid of biblical manhood or womanhood. LGBTQ will say, no male, female. Get rid of biblical marriage. How do we respond to this? Initially, we can say, in context, Paul is talking about our spiritual standing before God. And so these implications that these other people are suggesting are far outside the range of applications that he gave. That's absolutely true and valid, but we can take it one step beyond that. We can take it one step beyond that. Notice the pattern. Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free. Male and female. You hear that? Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free. Male and female. Paul makes an intentional change to show this is different than everything else. Male and female is different than everything else. And in fact, he not only makes that change to show it's different from everything else, he's showing us where it's going toward. Even the words male and female are not often used by Paul. But if you do a search or look in a cross-reference or look in your Greek New Testament, they will all point back to you to one passage. He made them male and female, Genesis chapter 1. This text doesn't undermine biblical manhood or womanhood or marriage. It establishes it because what Paul is arguing is in Christ, we are created the way we were always supposed to be back in Genesis chapter 1. If you have the ability to collect and connect the dots, you will have clarity. You will have clarity. This is not a magical process. It's collect the dots. It's connect the dots. It's hard work. It's hard work. The resources are there. We have to work through them. We have to make the connections. We have to prove the connections. We have to think about the theology that is going there. And then, and don't ignore this, we have to think about how to effectively and efficiently communicate it to our people. Effectively and efficiently communicate it to our people. This is hard work, but it's worth it. It's worth it. We want to give our people the best every single time. So let's make and really find the connections the author wants us to find. Well, here's the final tip final tip, and that is application. Application, the art of application. We know from our third conviction that every text has an application because it has an intent, and the author decides the range of that, and so we want to find that full range. We want to find that full range. How do we do that? Well, first and fundamentally, do literal grammatical historical well. Do literal grammatical historical well. If you know the what and why of every phrase and word, you will have an abundance of applications. You will have an abundance of so what, and it resolves so many different issues that come up with application. I can't stress this enough. If you do literal, grammatical, historical, well, it's going to get you real far. It's going to get you real far. But if you want to be totally thorough, second, understand how Scripture uses itself. If we see how Scripture uses itself, we know how its logic works, how it operates, how it functions, how it applies. And from that, we can get the totality of the range of the author. And so I want to give you four major ways that I've observed Scripture use itself to help us be comprehensive in our application. And here's the first one, worship God. Worship God. 
The Bible uses itself in this way. It uses narratives this way. Psalms recount different narratives to say, worship God for what he's done. It uses doctrine this way. Ephesians recounts doctrine, but the punchline in Ephesians 1.3 is, blessed be our God. It's about worshiping God. Even prophecy is applied this way. In the book of Revelation, prophecy of Old Testament is cited, but the whole point is, worship God. And so the Bible's major application of itself is for worship. Now, our people might not always be wired this way to think this way because they think applications about behavioral change, but we need to remind them, you are in a relationship with God. You are supposed to love him with all your heart, so we should worship him. This is practical. And so when we teach narratives and prophecies and other doctrines and et cetera, the fundamental application is worship God. Worship God. Somebody can't, you can't let your people just say, well, Jesus healed a leper. I wasn't that leper, so I don't care. No, you worship God for what he's done. Worship him. Don't be a selfish reader of scripture. That's what we need to remind them. Worship God. Now, on top of that, we need to also know theology. We need to know theology. And the Bible uses itself in this way. It uses narratives in Hebrews 3 and 4. Old Testament narratives to teach a theology of rest. In Hebrews 11, it uses narratives to teach a theology of faith. It uses the law in the New Testament to talk about God's justice. It even uses prophecy in Acts 15 to recount how God loves the Gentiles. Now, to be clear, the theology was already in all these texts because the biblical writers are theologians and everything they write is theology. So the New Testament is just bringing out what was already there. But it brought it out with this purpose. Know this. Learn this. And again, this might not be familiar with our people who are focused on behavioral change, but we need to remind them, knowing theology, learning it, is practical. It is a valid application of scripture. This is the reason why the church is in confusion, because they have failed to do this. Knowing justification is practical because it gives us stability in life. Knowing sanctification helps us to handle life. Knowing eschatology gives us hope, and the list can go on. Our people want to do things with their hands and their feet. We need to remind them they got to do things with their head. And so what we, when somebody comes up to you and says, Pastor, you've talked about this narrative or this prophecy or this epistle, and I'm learning theology from it or whatever. What am I supposed to really do, though? And you tell them, you need to know this. You need to know it like it's on a quiz. After all, you need to know things for school. You need to know things for your job. This is what you absolutely must know for your life. You need to master this so that you functionally and faithfully operate in the church in God's eternal plan. The Bible applies itself to say no theology. We need to lead our people in that. Here's a third one, moral response. Moral response. Our people are familiar with this, like I've hinted at before, and for very good reasons, because the scripture uses itself that way, very clearly. Narratives are used this way to the point where 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, they're examples for us. Every imperative operates this way, and even prophecy applies this way. In Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews says, hey, here's some prophecies about what God is going to do to judge in the end. Fear him. Fear him. Theology drives application. Theology drives morality. And so we dare not ignore the exhortations of scripture. They are an absolute must. We must engage in that. That's a major thrust of scripture. And we also need to remember that knowing theology, application number two, often moves to application number three, moral response. After all, the scripture says, be holy for I am holy. If you know theology, it will change your life, and we need to guide our people in that. So there are a variety of avenues to get to moral response, and we need to get there, because that's a major way the Bible uses itself. Well, here's the final one, worldview. Worldview. 
Worldview deals with the question of how do I understand this world? Why are things the way they are? Where are things going? And the scripture certainly uses itself in this way. Nehemiah 9 and Daniel 9, they recount the entire plan of God so that they can interpret what's going on and they know exactly what they should do, their purpose in life. And at that moment, we realize that Although our people don't understand this at times, we need to remind them of this. Certain doctrines like man and sin, as well as narratives, help us to understand why things are the way they are. So we're not swayed by the media and its interpretation of everything, but we have God's definitive truth on what is going on, and that helps us to know the real problems and real solutions. Other doctrines and prophecies help us to know where things are going and give us perspective in our personal trials and tragedies. And if you really know the whole plan of God, if you know the whole plan of God, then you really understand then why you do what you do and your purpose, the significance of what you do, the importance, the so what. Let me just give you one quick example of this. Paul discusses the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and we might wonder, why does he, why does he talk about the fruit of the Spirit at all? Why does he use that metaphor? Well, it all goes back to the Old Testament, where Israel is likened to a vine because God has desired them to bear fruit. In fact, this is connected and associated with the fulfillment of his plan. But we know Israel never can bear fruit. Isaiah 5, they bear vomit fruit. Hosea and Jeremiah describes them as a decrepit vine, and Ezekiel 15 says they're just a vine worthy to be burned. They can never bear fruit. But then what does our Lord say in John 15? I am the what? Vine. And he who abides in me shall bear what? much fruit. And who does Jesus promise to send in John 14 through 16? The Holy Spirit. Paul latches onto that truth and says, now for the first time, we can bear fruit. We can bear fruit. And now we need to remind our people of the greater worldview of our sanctification, that it has a greater impact. It is showing that for the first time, God has broken through to advance his plan. He has not forgotten. And our bearing fruit demonstrates that one day he will fulfill it all. There is a greater witness to sanctification than we might realize. And we need to have that by having the proper worldview. That is an application of all those passages I just listed. And so I've given us four applications. Now, this is not like McDonald's Happy Meals, collect all four. This is always and always based upon the author's intent. And so, yes, with the narrative, sometimes you worship God for what he's done. It reflects the theology, and you learn that. It has a moral response because there's a theology there, and the narratives are part of a worldview so that you must have. Great, you have four there. But sometimes the author wants you to have one thing, one major thing, like an epistle, know this theology. Maybe there are some secondary applications. We need to be based upon the author's intent, and ultimately we know this. Every text has a response. Every text has a response. And by doing literal grammatical historical well, as well as walking through the four applications, major categories that I've given, we can get the fullest ramifications of Scripture. And that's exactly what we want, because we want that on our lives and on the lives of our people. Well, by way of conclusion, <clears throat> we have been talking about the convictions and clarity of hermeneutics. The convictions and clarity of hermeneutics. And I want to just reinforce that and illustrate that with one last example. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9 through 22. 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 22. And if you open up there and you look at it, you're going to say, this is a list of names. How is that anything theological? The biblical writers are theologians. Everything they write is theological. And we must do literal grammatical historical hermeneutics well to see that. So let's do that now. We know 2 Timothy. It's Paul's legacy. Paul's legacy. This is historical background. It's him gathering up his whole ministry, handing it on to Timothy, like passing the baton so that Timothy can raise up faithful men. We know that that's the purpose, and the literary context frames that nature of that legacy. It is a word-based, word-centric ministry, legacy, because in every chapter of 2 Timothy, it's all about God's word. Notice in 2 Timothy 1, it says, hold fast to sound words. In 2 Timothy 2, don't fight against the text, rightly divide the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says what? 
All scripture is God-breathed in 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word. Every single chapter is about God's word. Final words, every single chapter is about God's word. That's the legacy. It's a hermeneutically precise, word-centric ministry. And that leads to 2 Timothy 4. And you say, but what do you do with these names? That's where redemptive history comes in. Redemptive history. We need to remember that Paul's mission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, the renown of Christ to the ends of the earth. So, in light of that, if we understand the grammatical structure of the passage, there's a list of names in verses 9 through 12 at the beginning with a call for Timothy to come quickly. And at the end of the passage, verses 19 through 21, there's a call for Timothy to come quickly with another list of names. And in the middle of it, there's Paul's own testimony. You have something parallel at the beginning and at the end, and then there's something in the middle. We call that a chiasm. This is a chiasm. And here's the way it works. The first list of names shows where Paul has placed different people, the places that they're at, because he has placed them in a corridor to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you can't just think about the here. Don't just think about the here. You have to think about every place now. It's your turn. It's every place. And the reason that Paul gives the list of names at the end is because these are the people that Timothy will partner with in order to accomplish that when Paul passes away. And Paul's telling Timothy, You cannot just think about the now. You have to think about the future. You have to think about things for all time. And Paul puts his testimony in the middle of this because Paul says to Timothy, God was with me, so he'll be with you. So take the gospel, take this ministry for every place for all time. For every place for all time. And at this moment, Paul has logistically established that his word-centric, hermeneutically precise ministry is for every place for all time. On one hand, brothers, that's our honor. We bear the Pauline mission. The Pauline mission is our mission. The Pauline ministry is our ministry. That's our honor. We continue that legacy, but that's our accountability. That's our accountability. We are accountable to that standard. And there's a lot of application in that. But if you understand this, then you'll understand Paul's final prayer. Final words, 2 Timothy 4.22. He says, grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. For the first time in the text, Paul uses a plural pronoun, grammar. Who's he thinking about with you all? Well, we know. He's thinking about every believer of every single place for all time. That means Paul, before he died, he prayed for even us, for you and for me, to uphold this ministry. That's how dear it was to him. And so, brothers, it is our turn. And may it be by our hermeneutical conviction and our hermeneutical clarity that we uphold a sola scriptura ministry as Christ builds his church. Thank you for your time.